Hello, my name is Geoffrey Wyatt and I'm the Senior Astronomy Educator at Sydney Observatory. And I'm going to talk to you about what's visible in the sky for the month of March. Of course, this sky guide and audio guide are available at our website, www.sydneyobservatory.com. For more information about the night sky, we also recommend that you purchase the 2009 Australian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Long. Now, for any night viewing activity, there is a simple list of equipment that you should take outside. Being March, it's still lovely and warm, but I think you need a blanket to sit on, a pair of binoculars, a pillow, and as I've already mentioned, the Australian Sky Guide. You also need to be able to find your way around the night sky, and by that I mean you need to be able to identify your cardinal directions. We're quite lucky in March because the sun is setting due west. So if you're facing due west for sunset, to your right will be north, to your left will be south, and directly behind, of course, east. You also need to be able to measure angles, and there's a fairly easy way of doing this. Because when we look at something in the sky, we'd like to give a direction in terms of position from north, and also the altitude or height above the horizon. Now if you hold your uh, clenched fist at arm's length, for most adults, that's about 10 degrees in size. So if something is 20 degrees above the horizon, that'll be two clenched fists above the horizon. If you spread your fingers, uh, the distance from your pinky to your thumb is about 15 degrees for the average person. And of course, a pinky held at arm's width is about one degree or twice the size of the full moon. Now there's also something else you need for when you're trying to find your way around the night sky, and that is, of course, imagination. Might sound silly, but what you need to do is to practice. Get a, a niece or a nephew or a child to draw a very simple dot-to-dot -dot figure for you and try and identify the picture. S series of small dots, stick figures joining them up, and there they will be your guide for the night sky. What we're going to do for March is start by looking to the west, then turn ever so slightly to a right so that we're looking about northwest. About 23 degrees, or a handspan and a clenched fist above the horizon, look for a V-shaped group of stars with one orange-reddish star at the top of the V. This is the setting constellation of Taurus the Bull, and Taurus the Bull is one of the oldest constellations that we know of. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you will need your printed sky map to help find your way around, so make sure you've got your map with you. Now, let's get back to Taurus. A bull in the sky? Well, why is there a bull? Quite probably because of our dependence upon cattle as a beast of burden and a source of food for thousands upon thousands of years. But to many people, it actually represents Jupiter, king of the Roman gods in disguise. Now, you won't be able to make out the whole bull, but you will be able to see their head and its quite long horns. A constellation, just like all constellations, are basically memory aids to help people navigate their way around the sky. Depending on your age and your eyesight, you can see up to about 1,500 to 2,000 stars on a clear night. Try and memorise the position of 2,000 points. I don't think anyone is capable of doing that. But if you join the dots and make up some interesting pictures and some stories to go with those pictures, it's much easier to remember them, or at least the general patterns. And that's what our constellations do. 
One of the oldest star maps dates back nearly 2,000 years to Claudius Ptolemy. Ptolemy devised a chart of stars and made up 48 constellations in all, and we still have all of them today, although we've broken one of them up into smaller constellations. And we only finished doing this in 1930, when the smallest of all constellations, the Southern Cross, came into official existence. Of course, people have been talking about it for a long time before then. So again, constellations, well, they're memory aids, and I suppose the, the best analogy for them is to think of them as suburbs in the sky. It'll give you a hand to find your general direction. Now that we've had a look at the head and horns of Taurus the Bull, go up about two clenched fists and you'll be able to see another fairly bright orange-reddish looking star. This is one of the more interesting stars in the night sky and it's known as Betelgeuse. Yes, that's its name. It has changed over the years, but Betelgeuse is... Well, it's a dying star, and it's the brightest star in the constellation of Orion the Hunter. To give you an idea, Betelgeuse is about 427 light years away and nearly 1,000 times bigger than the Sun. Now, that introduces two things that we need to think about. Stars are different sizes, some are much bigger than the Sun, and some are much smaller. The Sun is a fairly average kind of star. The other thing to remember is that stars are different distances away. When we're sitting on the grass and we're looking up at the heavens and enjoying the show, the stars look like they're all the same distance. And in fact, for a long time, people considered the stars to be holes in a celestial sphere that let in the light from heaven. We now know that each one of these stars is a big, hot ball of gas of different size and different distances away from us. So 427 light years, what does that mean? Well, it tells us that the light from that star has been travelling to us at the speed of light for 427 years. When you look at a star, you are in effect looking back into time. Now, Orion's brightest star, Betelgeuse, is also big, a thousand times the diameter of the Sun. And don't forget that the Sun is about 114 times the diameter of the Earth. It really does put into perspective just how big our universe is. Now, Betelgeuse, this lovely orange-reddish star that we're looking at, actually represents the armpit of the hunter. Hmm, not a particularly nice way of considering such a bright, beautiful star. But according to the ancients, it represents the armpit, or in fact we now call it the shoulder of the giant. It can be difficult to see, but if you look carefully at the Australian Sky Guide map, or the printable map, you should be able to see a simple stick figure of a hunter. But let me tell you, most Australians who look at this part of the sky don't see a hunter. We actually see a saucepan. Yes, the humble saucepan that lives in the kitchen has replaced the hunter. Well, unofficially, of course. The three base stars of the saucepan, Orion's Belt, are quite famous. They're bright and they're easy to see lying near the celestial equator. So. We get a good view of these stars pretty much from north and south of the equator. If you look at the three stars that form the base of the saucepan, and depending on the time of year it can be the right way up or upside down, look for from one corner, go up to, a, I suppose, the side of the saucepan, now go to the other end of the line of three and go up, and you'll see another close line of three stars at an angle. And this, in fact, forms the handle of the saucepan. 
Now, if you've got a, a good pair of binoculars and you will need a tripod or rest them, wedge them against a tree or into a fence with a pillow for stability because you just can't hold binoculars steady enough. If you look at this group of three stars that make up the handle, you'll be able to see that the middle star-like object is in fact not a star. It's a collection of baby stars wrapped in a cocoon of dust and gas which we call a nebula. And what you're looking at is actually the birthplace of stars. It's a beautiful object to see, even through binoculars, if you can hold them still, or of course if you have a small telescope or you can make it to an observatory, the view of this nebula called M42, or the Great Nebula in Orion, is one of the prettiest views in the night sky. If you look up a little bit higher into the sky from Orion the Hunter, you'll actually see one very bright star. That star is in fact high in the northwestern sky at the moment, and it is of course the brightest star in the night sky, Sirius the Dog Star, in the constellation of Canis Major, the Big Dog. Sirius is also quite an interesting star. It's the brightest star in the night sky, but it's not the closest. So this relates back to the ideas I was mentioning before, that stars are different sizes and therefore different brightnesses, and of course different distances away from us. At about 8.7 light years away, it's more than twice the distance of the nearest stars to us after the sun of Alpha Centauri. But it's a big, bright, hot young star. Sirius has, if you like, a very important historical use for us as well, in that long, long ago, the Egyptians used its position in relation to the morning rise of the sun to calculate the length of a year, and they worked it out to be 365 and a quarter days, just by measuring its position in something which we call heliacal rise. So stars are not only beautiful, but they're useful, and they have been for such a long time. Now, you may have also heard the name Sirius before. Of course, one of the ships in the first fleet was HMS Sirius. And now, of course, because of the uh, series of novels and movies of Harry Potter, you've probably heard of the character Sirius Black, who can change into a dog. And this, of course, relates back to the idea that Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation of the big dog. Now, what I want you to do is to scan to your right and towards the east. As you do this, you'll pass the twins of Gemini and the almost invisible constellation of Cancer the Crab. You'll come across a, a group of stars that, well, not that bright, but if you look carefully and use your star map as a guide, you should be able to see an upside-down question mark. Now, it's not perhaps the most spectacular of things to look for an upside-down question mark, but remember, a lot of these constellations were named from the Northern Hemisphere. So, down here in the south, we're seeing it, well, the wrong way up. The upside-down question mark actually represents the chest and the fiery mane of Leo the Lion, one of the more famous of the constellations of the Zodiac, or the path of the animals. Leo was thought to represent the lions that left the desert looking for water around about the time that the Nile River used to flood, which curiously was also when the sun was in that particular constellation. From more modern ancient Greek times, Leo was killed by Hercules as part of his twelve labours and placed into the sky. As long as you can see the question mark, you're well on the way to seeing the rest of his body 
using the maps I've already discussed. Continue to the east from Leo the Lion, about two handspans away from the tail, and one above the ground, and you'll be able to see another group of stars that, well, I have to say, looks a bit like a shopping trolley. What you're looking at is Corvus the Crow. According to legend, Corvus was a fairly lazy bird in the service of the god Apollo. Eventually, Apollo lost his temper with the bird and banished him into the sky along with Crater the Cup and Hydra the Snake. But really, a bird or a shopping trolley? I'll leave it up to you. Have a look and see what you can make out. This raises an interesting point about constellations. In the past, they were named after great characters from legends of heroes and villains and spectacular events that people used to talk about. But they are really, in effect, just a memory aid. So to us in modern society, what's going to be more appropriate to look at and see a picture? A shopping trolley or a bird? Who knows? Perhaps in the full course of time, we'll be looking at constellations known as the mobile phone or the laptop or the DVD. I don't know. I, I do tend to hope that we keep the older, uh, more established constellations. But once again, I don't know. I think it looks more like a shopping trolley than a, than a crow. Once you've found Corvus, which is pretty much due east at this time of year, continue around to your right and you'll be heading down towards the southeast. Fairly low in the southeast, I think you'll be able to see perhaps what is the most famous of all southern constellations. It's also, by the way, the smallest of all of the 88 constellations, and that is, of course, Crux, or as most of us call it, the Southern Cross. To most of us, it looks like a traditional Christian cross, but to many people around the world, it's different things. For example, the Maori of New Zealand know it as Tapunga, meaning the anchor. But for a truly diverse view of the southern skies and the southern cross, you need to visit the culture of the Australian Aboriginal communities. In Koori astronomy, it represents many different things. To the calendar of New South Wales near the border of Victoria, it represents the four unmarried daughters of a group elder by the name of Mulalu. And he actually watches over them from the vantage point of Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star in the night sky, and the closest star to us after the sun. To other Aboriginal communities, for example up near Groot Island in the Northern Territory, it represents a stingray swimming along merrily, but unfortunately about to be munched upon by a shark coming in from the side, which is represented as the two pointers, the bright stars of the constellation Centaurus. Now, although throughout March it's on its side and slightly upside down, I'd like to point out that even though it looks like the stars are at the same distance, they're not. The closest star in the Southern Cross, Gamma Crucis, is about 88 light years away, whereas the second brightest star, Beta Crucis, is about 525 light years away. Now don't forget, a light year is simply the distance that light travels in one year. Now if you're one of those really pedantic people that love uh, numbers, you can actually work it out by calculating number of seconds in a year and multiplying that by 300,000 kilometres every second. You'll end up with a number which, quite frankly, is difficult to pronounce, but it works out to be about 9,500 billion kilometres. Now, that's just one light year. So, Beta Crucis, 525 light years away. Oh, goodness me, that's a long way. 
Now, eventually, in astronomy, we actually come up with a, another measure of distance, even bigger than the light year, called the parsec. That's a bit complicated, and we'll leave that perhaps for another time. Now, wrapped around the Southern Cross, although not all that easily seen at the moment, is the fairly large and famous constellation of Centaurus, half man, half horse. But I think we need to give that constellation another month or two to get slightly higher up into the sky. High in the south, you'll be able to see the second brightest star in the night sky, Canopus. Canopus is significantly bigger and brighter than the brightest star I mentioned earlier, Sirius the dog star. So how come it's only the second brightest? Aha, as I've mentioned, distances. Stars are at different distances. Sirius is only 8.7 light years away, whereas Canopus is a lot further at about 310 light years. So being so far away, even though it's much brighter, in fact about 20,000 times brighter than the Sun, it comes in at number two as we look at it. Strangely, to some people around the world, particularly fishermen from the Northern Hemisphere and those from Japan when they sail from the north into the south, they see this very bright star Canopus pop up over the southern horizon. Such a bright and beautiful star makes them feel good. If you feel good and you're happy, you tend to live a little longer, or so the legend goes. So the Japanese name for this star is Nagaiki, meaning long life. Now the part of the sky that stretches from the Southern Cross in the southeast up to Canopus High in the south is an absolutely wonderful hunting ground for binoculars. Use them very slowly, and remember you've got to mount them firmly so you don't shake, and you'll be able to see quite a lot of interesting objects, including clusters, and maybe, depending upon the sky conditions, even a nebula in the constellation of Carina, where there's a very bright dying star known as Eta Carina. So the Southern Milky Way, it's one of the more beautiful sights to see, and of course in the Southern Hemisphere, we get a much better view than our relatives up north. Now that we've finished facing south, we're going to swing around a little bit towards the southwest, and there's another bright star. Well, it's the tenth brightest star in the night sky, and it's called Achenar, and it's the brightest star in the constellation of Eridanus the River. To some Aboriginal communities, by the way, Achenar, along with Canopus, represent the cooking fires of the Kumaru brothers, who were seen as the large and small Magellanic clouds, our nearest visible galactic neighbours. These galaxies look like small pieces of the Milky Way that have broken off and drifted away to form little islands of cloud. But they are, in fact, entirely separate galaxies to us. You really need to be away from the city lights and you won't be able to see them if there's a moon in the sky. But, once again, as some legends say, these galaxies represent the Kumara brothers and the bright star Achenar is their cooking star. Now the highlights for the month of March 2009 include the autumn equinox on Friday the 20th at 10.44pm. But what does that mean, the autumn equinox? And we've got to be very, very careful about this because some people want to call it the autumnal equinox. But no, I would in fact argue that it is the vernal equinox. Uh-oh, autumnal, autumn, vernal, spring... It's all very confusing. An equinox simply means equal day and equal night. 
and this occurs when the Sun crosses from one hemisphere to the other. On Friday the 20th at 10.44pm, all this means is that the Sun will cross from the Southern Hemisphere back into the Northern Hemisphere. Now for us in the Southern Hemisphere, this is, if you like, the beginning of autumn. But most of our culture, apart from the tremendous Aboriginal sky culture I've just been talking about, comes from the Northern Hemisphere. So for those in the North, it's the beginning of spring. So in fact, the vernal equinox is what they call it in the uh, Northern Hemisphere, although for us, it's best that we just stick to the autumn equinox. A little bit confusing, isn't it? Well, once again, for us, let me state for the record, it is the autumn equinox, but for those in the north, it's the vernal equinox. The autumn equinox is also one of the two dates each year where the sun sets directly west. I mentioned at the very start of the podcast that if you want to find your cardinal directions, uh, you couldn't pick really a better day than Friday the 20th because the sun, as it sets, will be due west and this only happens twice a year. For March, the phases of the moon are Wednesday the 4th, we'll have a first quarter, and first quarter really is about the best time to view the moon, even through binoculars or a small telescope. Wednesday the 11th will be the full moon, and that's the worst time to view the moon. It's pretty much like staring at a light bulb and trying to read Osram 40 watts written on it. It's a pointless exercise. Thursday the 19th will be the last quarter when the moon rises at about midnight, and the new moon will occur on Friday the 27th. Now for March 2009, this means that the full moon is before the equinox. Well, so what? What does that mean? Well, for many of us, it is actually a big deal, because one of the most important movable feasts for the last 2,000 years is determined by the equinox and the full moon. And that is, of course, the timing of Easter. The timing of Easter has been an enormous problem for astronomers and philosophers for nearly 2,000 years. And we've now come down to a definition of Easter, that is, Easter Sunday occurs on or after the first full moon on or after the equinox. Now, as I mentioned earlier, for us in the Southern Hemisphere, it's the autumn equinox, but for those in the North, they will talk about the vernal equinox. Remember I also mentioned earlier on the constellation of Leo the Lion? So scan towards the northeast and see if you can find Leo once again. Find the upside down question mark with the chest and the fiery mane of the lion. Then extend towards the east and you should be able to see it sitting there pretty much like a majestic cat or, or the sphinx in fact. And if you look carefully, near the tail you'll be able to see a slightly yellowish bright star-like object. Uh Aha, but it's not a star. It is a planetea, a wandering star that the Romans knew as the god of agriculture. It is, of course, the planet Saturn. Now, sadly, this time, binoculars won't be able to give you much of a help, I'm afraid. You'll need something slightly more powerful, but even a small telescope with a good lens will be able to show you that Saturn has a magnificent set of rings. No wonder it's often described as the jewel of the night sky. So in March, if you can get to an observatory or a friend's place with a telescope, you'll be richly rewarded by a view of the planet Saturn. 
Now, if you're an early bird, March 2009 gives you pretty much just one good opportunity to get up early and have a look at something interesting. On the 2nd of March at around 5.30am, look to the east to the constellation of Capricorn, half goat, half fish, and you'll be able to see the planets Mercury and Mars. Pretty much just one pinky width apart and one hand span above the horizon. Now just above these two planets will be the very bright king of the gods, Jupiter. So you do in fact have three planets in fairly close proximity. That was the monthly sky guide for the month of March provided by Sydney Observatory. For more information you can check our blog at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au slash blog. But don't forget, for a more comprehensive map and details of times and everything like that, you can check out our Australian Sky Guide by Dr Mick Long, available for purchase online or at the Powerhouse Museum and Sydney Observatory. <laughs>